You can go ahead and open your Bibles if you would. We're going to jump to um, a couple different scriptures this morning. But if you're, if you're just jumping into our series, those of us that went to France together uh, had a great time receiving kind of a retreat-style experience on the seven stories that shape your life. And the concept of that is that there's seven stories in Scripture, one could argue, that really frame the story of God and humanity. And I, I, we, may, we may have that up there. I don't know if one of the slides has it on there, kind of the, the seven ones. But the first one is the story of creation, and we talked about that last week. And the story of creation, ultimately, for you and I, the reason why it's so important that we understand the creation story is that in the creation story, we tap into your why. Like the why am I here, what am I doing type of questions. Your why of everything that you do. Uh, every business, every ministry, uh, everything with a mission, everything we do in life with a mission, you first and foremost discover what the why. Why are we doing what we're doing? I had a professor in, in college um, named Alan Ingham, and, and it was a sociology class. The only thing that guy ever said more than once was, why do we do what we do? And he had this just amazing British accent and some amazing British cars, actually. I went and hung out with him a couple times. And... Uh, that was the only thing I think I remember from college. Why do we do what we do? So week one, if you're going to remember one phrase, why do we do what we do? And the story of creation kind of taps in to your place in that story. Today we're going to, we're going to relate the vocation story, which is your calling, finding your calling. Most of us have done this to a certain degree, but what I'm finding and what happened to me as we were kind of reflecting in France and as I've come back is that there's some fresh language that I feel that we're supposed to delve into as a community. And, and there's a fresh lens that we are meant to carry when we are living out the story of God and when we're living out the story of Scripture and where we can more effectively see our place in the story and testify to it, where we're not kind of lost. If you're like me, do you sometimes, I, I can know the Bible inside and out, spend time with Jesus day in and day out, in Jesus' name, I do that every day. Yeah. I didn't want to like get all high and lofty. I'm trying to be relatable here for a moment, if that's all right. But in my weakest moments, this sometimes happened more often than, than I would like, I feel a little bit like lost in the throat. And even as I'm in a, a full-time vocational ministry position, I can, I can still go like, what am I doing sometimes? Those of you that are living a vocation out, and those of you that are like, I really wish my job was from God. <laughs> Our deepest longing is to be those who know that our lives are contributing to the fruitfulness of humanity and creation. We are wired that way. And so what we, what we kind of did last, last, last week in the creation story is we saw how you know, Adam and Eve, when God speaks to them, we're supposed to be looking at Adam and Eve realizing that his voice to them is his voice to you and I. So it's personal to them, but it's also global. It's humanity's representatives when God is speaking to humanity. And then in creation, we see that God's ultimate desire is what? Anyone remember? Intimacy. Intimacy. God's ultimate desire for you and I is intimacy. So what does God want? He wants intimacy with human beings. And his desire for us is to then be fruitful according to our kind. We need to know what kind of tree we are. We talked about that. 
I think one of the reasons why Enneagram is so popular, thank you, Ms. Shaw, for your inspiration in our midst. I, I probably quote Enneagram things five times a day right now. And is anyone else kind of in that? Like, it, I annoy myself sometimes how much I use the Enneagram. And I only know like two numbers, and I still use it like, I only know my numbers, I don't really, and my wife's a little bit, and then everyone else, you're all kind of a mystery to me. But the, the point is, I believe that the reason why the Enneagram resonates so deeply is because it helps you define kind of how you're wired and how you're called as a human being, apart from just your work and your job, to a degree. Can someone say amen? Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure how I was tracking there. Okay. And so this fruitfulness that we have unlocks the beautiful potential of God's creation and gives you your why. Your ability to embrace your unique place in creation and to bring fruit that you were created to bring fruit for. So then the story begins with God's intention. God's intention for you and the planet. It does not begin with the problem. And so what we, what we discussed was our story that many of us have been told and are telling often begins with this sin problem. And when it begins with a sin problem, you don't have a very good story, do you? Uh, Aaron Sorkin, I, I think I have that quote up there again. I want to read it one more time to you. Um, we did it last week. Aaron Sorkin's a famous um, Hollywood writer, and he says this about the concept of story. Rather than tell the audience who the character is, I like to show the audience what the character wants. It all boils down to intention, an obstacle. Say that. Intention and obstacle. Somebody wants something. Something is standing in their way of getting it. They want the girl. They want the money. They want to get to Philadelphia or wherever. It doesn't matter, but they have to want it bad. If they can need it, it's even better. Something formidable is standing in their way, and the tactics that the character uses to overcome the obstacle is going to define who the character is. So, what if the story of Scripture actually begins with God's intention for humanity and not a problem, where the story doesn't start with the problem of sin, and instead, because that's what we've been told. But what if the story is actually a little bit better than that? It starts with God, the main character, whose intention for us is intimacy. And then there's this obstacle. And what's the obstacle? The obstacle is actually trust. Sin is real. It's just that the creation story isn't talking about the highlighting problem of sin and God's wrath. Where does God highlight that in the Genesis story? How is that the story that God is telling? The story that God is telling is that this main character, God, has intention for you. And the question is, is how far is that main character going to go to get what he wants? You. Intimacy with you. And what is it that is that obstacle? That obstacle is trust. It's the trust that was broken when human beings entered into shame. And they tried to cover themselves in their nakedness. And God in his kindness gives them clothes. And he says, I want to see you. It was their idea to not let God see them. 
And so we have this main character who's after us for intimacy that wants to see you and restore trust and intimacy with you. That's the grand story. That shifts everything. That shifts how we live, what we tell ourselves and everyone around us. It's the story about what God wants. So, in the midst of this story, there's another story. And that's the vocation story. The story of your calling. Of you finding that calling and purpose that is unique to you. And we often highlight, when we get to this, um, and, and just to give props to where it's due, uh, Gerard Kelly, who is uh, our, our good friend in, in teaching us while we were over in France, he's written this amazing book called The Seven Stories That Shape Your Life. I used his quote. And you should read it. I think there's only a few copies left on Amazon. But I, I'll, be, I'll be quoting him from time to time. But what I'm trying to do is actually massage his, his language into where we're going and what I feel like we're trying to land on here as a, as a body. But I just want to do that from the get-go because I believe in citing authors. But he, he did a, a great job of, of this concept of how we have this path imagery in the church. Like, I, I, the song that came to mind first is, you know, anyone sing this song? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word. Anyone sing that by chance? Wondered, oh, a lot of you. I think I, think I learned that in um, some kind of kids program. Anyone else? Was this like through like a youth kids program? Yes, I see that hand. Yes, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't even know where I learned a lot of my songs of childhood. They just come out, and, and I remember, like, someone starts singing a song from when I was, like, less than the age of 15. I remember every word. As soon as I hit, like, college, I can't remember the words of a song ever, ever, ever. I don't know what happens to the mind there, but the, the um, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> it's a word from God she got there. I needed water. So... So we often highlight this path imagery in our songs. Psalm 25 says this, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. We obviously take these kinds of, of verses and, and we try to respond to his call and to doing the stuff he's called us to do. There's nothing wrong with that, the path stuff. But at times, and maybe you'll resonate with this, uh, the tricky po the point is that the path imagery is often made into this picture where there's one narrow path and we all have to fit on it. And if we don't, we miss like everything good of the kingdom. Right? So thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's all good. And then somehow we change that and we kind of merge that with like Broad is the gate, narrow is the one. The gate is narrow and wide. Some can enter, some can't. And, and, and that gets really hairy. Uh, the funny thing about that, in Matthew 7, that's Jesus that says that. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That's Matthew 7, verse 11. So, so Jesus is about to talk about this gate thing. I'm going to quote that to you in a second. But he does that first by talking about the amazingly good father. Just put that into some context there. And then he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
So that's completely different. The context is different. Jesus' emphasis is different. This isn't the teaching for the day. I just want to differentiate the path and the gate, the context that Jesus has, and when we confuse the concept of the path that we're walking. Does that make sense? Because sometimes if we view the path, my calling of life is to get on this narrow little path and squeeze through the eye of a needle like a camel. Uh, and we, we, just, we just merge all these biblical metaphors. All of a sudden, it's really hard to find your unique distinction of where you fit on the path that God's called you to. And yet, make no mistake that the gate Jesus is very clear about. Can we do that and live in that tension? Can we embrace the path that we're meant to be on that bears fruit that's unique to you and then also say that, yes, Jesus talks about this gate, and if you try to pretend there's all these different gates, maybe you need to ask Jesus for some clarity. But that's, again, I just want to briefly talk about the difference of a gate and a path. Okay. I feel better? Is everyone okay? Okay. So the issue is, here's the issue. We have a mindset that infects things like our parenting from the earliest of ages. And this is what it looks like. So we say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. We know that well. But then what we do is we then teach our kids, we interpret that as the concept of teach, teach your children uh, the right rules, godly rules, and when they're old, they'll abide by the rules. Or it's a comfort for mothers that are sitting in their kitchen praying over their teenagers that have run away from God, and they're holding on to these promises, like when they're old, they're not going to depart from these things that I put in them when they were kids. I think that's, I mean, I, I have no problem with moms continuing to hold on to promises of God, you know, on their knees in the kitchen or whatever it is. And hopefully it's fathers praying too. But the, the, the point is, I'm, I'm just using the, using the stereotype. The point is, is that what if that concept of teach your kids the way they should go looks more like this? Show them the path they were made for. And when they are old, they won't depart from it. It's pretty simple. That's much more of what the author was talking about than make sure that they memorize a bunch of rules that hopefully go somewhere in them so that when they're older, they abide by the rules. If our target is that our children understand who they are, their calling, their destiny, their uniqueness, where they embrace and they have heard words over them. Like we said with these dads this weekend, it blew my mind how much some of these kids, as little as four, with all the chaos and the temptations around them, with candy and s'mores and fires and lizards and whatever else, when they found out that dad was going to speak destiny over them, they ran straight to dad and they waited until they got their word. Every human being is wired to hear the voice of the Father proclaim destiny and promise, purpose over them. And did you know that the word vocation actually comes from the Latin word that means voice? So this biblical concept of, of vocation, path, and calling, it's meant to be spoken over us. 
Your vocation is meant to be spoken over you. You're not supposed to be just figuring out what job you're supposed to do. If we can start being a people that are telling a story, that we live for the voice of God that speaks identity, purpose, promise of our path and our purpose over us. Imagine the places, the fruit, the direction, the life that will pursue us, that we'll walk in, that people will be contagiously after and wanting us to speak with them. Uh, Gerard gave this great example of, of how even like our, our TV shows like The Voice uh, or any of those Americans got talent or he, he, he said something like, sometimes I wonder if those shows like America's Got Talent should have a question mark at the end of it. I, I thought that was pretty clever, some of his British humor. Uh, but the, the idea is, you know, I'll, I don't actually watch those shows. I watch the YouTube version of those shows when, when they have like a two-minute clip of, of some like really scary person that looks like they've been in a cave their whole life, and then they come out, and they've got the voice of an, like a heralding arc of angels that comes out of their face, and the whole crowd is like, ah, and, and they start crying in 34 seconds and snotting, and then the judges, they, they, they do what? What do the judges do when someone out of nowhere that they're not expecting releases gifts on them? They use heaven's language. They say, you've got a gift. Something has given you something that needs to be used. And they start calling to life things on them. In fact, we don't have language apart from God language to describe things where people have been given gifts. Even talents, when we use the concept of talent, Jesus talked about talents, and the whole concept when he said, this person had this many talents, this person had this many talents, the whole concept is actually that they had been given something that they had to use, and if they didn't use what they'd been given, it was a waste. The whole point was you've been given it, some at different measures, but use it. It's meant to bear fruit and to do something with it. So the same thing, the, the earth in our society is craving this language. And my favorite part about those shows, by the way, is that then these judges get all this credit for discovering these people. I'm like, you didn't discover anybody. They walked right into your face and gave you this amazing, I could have sat there and told them they were amazing. I, it just doesn't do anything. What, what I love about the church, and this is really actually something that changed for me when we start talking about evangelism and getting out there and speaking words in life and loving people like Jesus loves them. You know, what you should be focusing on is calling things out in people like that before anyone else sees it. We have the ability to see the voice and to be the voice for people everywhere we go and to be those people that first discovered them because we hear the voice of God and we know that God has a voice for them. And I, I'll, I'm, I'll never forget those moments where, I mean, it's usually like at some kind of uh, area where, or maybe there's times where I've been at, at uh, you know, just environments, whether it's churches, retreats, or someone's house where, where, like, I don't know people, but they just walk up to me and they just start saying, I just feel like God has blah, blah, blah over you, or I just saw this picture, or as you were speaking, I saw this and that. And I will tell you, those are the things I write down where the people that don't know me but that are picking up something from heaven. They're picking up something of my Father's voice, and they're speaking it over me. There's always something profoundly simple and powerful that goes to the depth of my soul when, when someone calls that out. We have, the, we have the ability to do that. First to our, each other. 
Those in the room, you have free access at any given moment to go remind them of the voice over them, to practice on each other, to make mistakes, to, you know, to take risks a little bit, and then to go out and to do that in our places of influence, where our goal isn't to tell them the story of their sin. Our goal is to proclaim a voice over them that releases purpose, that reminds them of the fruit they were meant to bear. Because the reality is is that the vast majority of the human planet is incredibly depressed at the fruitfulness of their life. The main question of vocation and calling then is what has God given me and what does he want me to do with it? What has God given you? What has God given you? This isn't, um, you know, I think it's helpful to talk about the gifts, the, the spiritual gifts. And scripture, you can pull that slide up if you could, Lena Marie. Um, again, it's small, but I'm not going to read it through. What, what's on this, this little list behind me, I know it's hard to see, it's not actually that important to see all the little words, but scripture has these things called like, gifts of the Spirit and fruits and things from exhortation and giving to apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, to things like hospitality, faith, helps, healing, knowledge, miracles, wisdom, mercy. There's, there's all these kinds of, of, of gifts listed in scripture, and n- never is the intent um, to categorize gifts. Um, also, when we do categorize them, I think it's a, as a reminder. I, I, just, I just sat there with, with these this week. And, and I just kind of let them seek, sink in. And I realized that, one, we can so easily define ourselves by, by certain things. And when we're asking for, like, Lord, like, if I just ask you now, Lord, I need to hear, what's my calling? There are so many unhelpful ideas of what a calling is. So many unhelpful ideas. Can we just take a moment and just wash our minds clear? I say, Holy Spirit, wash our minds clear of everything that has been spoken over us, not spoken over us, that's been come through the culture, that's been coming from parents, friends, workplaces, or whatever else, that says this is what a calling is, this is what the standard is, and this is what you're supposed to be living for. Let's wash that, and let's start fresh. Okay, if we, if we enter into the Word of God and what the Father says, we have access to all this stuff. We have access to this, all of it. That you may not be a prophet, but you have access to prophecy. Yeah, you may not be an evangelist, but you have access to the Holy Spirit that can work evangelistically through you. You may not have the special gift of wisdom like your friend sitting next to you, but you have access to the God of all wisdom that can give you wisdom when you need it, both from his word, through his voice, through your friend, through your community. You have access to these things. At the same time, you each have a unique tree that God is making through you, and these things help us get the language in our brain that help highlight the kind of tree that you are. So I think the starting place to determine what kind of tree you are is to start to highlight these words, these concepts about who you are. And no one of them may fully embrace who you are and your calling. But if you put a few of these together, if you just let yourself highlight a few of these, you will start to develop language for your tree. So instead of I don't want to even start going into names of jobs, but in, instead of my calling as even a, a parent or, or your job in sales or your being a doctor or a lawyer or a pastor or a job you hate, 
What if we start going like, you know what? When God made me, I know that he has given me all the gifts of the Spirit to walk in power, first of all. But second of all, he's made me uniquely. And maybe he's made you with a unique gift of leadership. Or you have a unique ability to serve like you wouldn't believe. Or you've got a dynamic where you've got unusual faith, where you're the person in the room that stands when everyone else is faltering. Maybe there's a dynamic of discernment or wisdom where you're able to give a word when it's needed. And you're like, you know, I've always kind of felt like that. I didn't know what to do with it. Those are the things that start defining your calling, your tree, your purpose. And when you start using that language, it almost doesn't matter where you find yourself on Monday morning. Because your tree isn't defined by it. Your tree can bear fruit in it. And in fact, where you find yourself on Monday is going to be the place where your fruit lands. And that's the beautiful part of where God places us. I really believe we can become a community that is so insatiably sure about what God is saying over us, what kind of trees we are, what kind of fruit we bear. And we are strengthening each other as trees in this beautiful garden together in such a way that every single person is excited about the place that they're in, about the words over their life, and about the fruit that they're bearing. That's the will of God. It's the absolute will of God of this house. And there is absolutely no guilt and shame if you don't feel like you're there. We have to pursue this together. When you get a breakthrough in it, we need to know every single testimony that comes out, we need to hear it. You need to be encouraging people in your struggle and not just pretending on your highlight reel. I feel like even like my Instagram needs to show some of my junk more than just my highlights so that people realize that, yeah, Norway was great and it also sucked when I had to do X, Y, and Z. We have to do that with life too with each other. Your testimonies aren't just your highlights. They're the struggle you got to get to them. And we need that as a community to get to where we need to be. Your struggle of your calling and getting breakthrough in that. There's those of you that are like ashamed to even say, I still don't feel like I'm called even though I'm doing this, 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 and this in ministry, in work, in this, in kids, and blah, 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 blah. And you still don't feel like you're called. And this, this community has to be a place that's safe enough to pursue that together. And to get on that path together, even if your paths look a little bit different. It's significant, it's worth it, and it's right. Okay, so, so just to even highlight some of these things. If that's overwhelming to look at a long list, um, I thought it was helpful. I found this week some of the things that break down gifts. Such as, there are gifts that are just, in general, that have to do with communication. So if you have a gift of communication, you have the spiritual gifts of exhortation, prophecy, and teaching in some way, shape, or form, whether it's used on a Sunday morning or not. Those are the kind of gifts that someone who has a communication gift has. That's a fact. If you are a leader, you have some kind of, whether you are really good at, at detailed administration or, or, or big picture administration, visionary administration, if you are a leader, you have some level of the gift of administration, and, and you are also, often, you, you've got the ability to pastor, uh, and, and m- many other things. I didn't make a big list here because I wanted to run through this. If you're a servant, if you've got a serving gift wired into your being, hospitality, helps, giving, mercy, these are natural overflows, oftentimes of a servant. If you, if you love doing things like outreach, 
Then, then things like um, the apostolic gifts and evangelism, uh, even, even the gifts of tongues and missionary type of work, those kinds of things, not just looking at what the, 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 the professional ministry jobs look like, but what is the kinds of things that those people do? What stirs you up and in your passions? And then finally, spiritual insight. Those kinds of gifts like discernment and wisdom, for instance. There are so many people in the body that have that. Hugh, you have that. You have the gift of discernment. He's not even listening. It may be, is God talking to you right now? Are you discerning something else that we need to do? And, and it's like, so the, the gift of discernment, wisdom, sometimes I feel like we're in the room, we're in a prayer meeting, and I'm like, the Lord is speaking to Hugh, maybe like right now, because he, he's not speaking through me, he's just speaking straight to him, and, and he's picking up on stuff. He, he has an obvious gift of, of, of wisdom discernment. And those can be two different gifts, by the way. But you have that. You have that. It's significant. And you need to have confidence to speak it out to individuals and corporately. It's important. I hate that when Holy Spirit works, I cry. I'm not even, I don't even feel anything towards you emotional right now. I'm just being real. So annoying. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay, so, so what does all this calling stuff mean? It means that God takes you seriously. God's really serious about you. He's serious about humanity, but this isn't a game. He's serious about each of us, and you need to embrace that you are part of the solution for the created order. Your purpose is significant, and God's plans for humanity and creation requires you and I to actually believe who he says we are and that we're worthy. I think we're going to probably keep hammering this until we really get it. I mean, all that Brene Brown stuff about being worthy. It's a really big deal, and it's biblical. All that Brene Brown did is she discovered kingdom theology, which is at the heart of those who know that they have belonging and love are people that know that they are worthy of belonging and love. You're worthy. If you don't, if you don't receive a place and a posture of worthiness. You can't possibly receive your calling. Some of us in the room today just, just need to have someone partner and pray for us, for us to actually believe the voice over our life. So God's intentions and his plans are actually to set you up to discover your calling and that you would contribute to the fruit of your own unique tree, that you're worthy. So then Genesis 18, and I want to kind of start to, to wind to a culminating spot to minister out of from this. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis 18, I'm just going to highlight a couple passages from it and then, and then wrap it up. But in Genesis 18, we have the story of Abraham and Sarah. It's when God tells them they're going to have a son. It's going to, he's going to be, you're going to be the father of many, many nations. And they're old. And they haven't had a child. And in that culture, it means you're not going to have a child and that there's something wrong with you. Sarah laughs at this concept that she's going to get pregnant because she's super old. It's also weird because she's also super attractive. Multiple times in the um, Genesis story, some of you perked up when I said that. Um, in the Genesis story, multiple times, Sarah is, is 
tried to be taken by, by a ruler uh, in the area that they go into because she is so attractive. That's what the Bible says. The interesting thing that I find, the first time it says that, you're like, okay, cool, yeah, so Abraham has an attractive wife. Good for Abraham, you know? You don't have kids, but you've got an attractive wife. Is that what we're supposed to learn from this? Why are you giving us this information, Genesis? That's what I've thought at times. I'm just being real. Um, but it says it again when they're like 80 years old that this other king wants to take Sarah for his wife. I think it's very odd. Um, so, <laughs> just want to share that. It's, it's very odd. She, she, is uniquely, she is uniquely attractive. What's funny is, is she doesn't care. We have a culture today where people mourn the loss of their attractive bodies for children. And Sarah could care less about her appearance. All she wants is a baby. Is there something in the story that God is telling? That he knows when you start to miss the story, you start to twist identity. And we have, we have a culture that starts to mourn the loss of, of the female body when you do the most holy act of reproducing and giving life to humanity. Like when we kiss it goodbye and do everything possible to not do that. It's a perversion of God's story. Sarah does not care. Nothing in that culture besides apparently really rich kings care that you have an attractive body. Plus, they wore a whole lot of material to cover the whole thing up. I'm not even sure how the kings knew that she was attractive, but she was. She must have had some killer eyes. But the, the reality is, she just wants a baby. Abraham is all in for this big stuff, this world-conquering father of all nations, blah, 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 blah. Sarah does not care. She just wants a baby. Well, what's interesting is both of their dreams are fulfilled through God's purposes in Isaac, one child. Both of their dreams are met. And this is constantly in, in Scripture, actually. Gerard did a great job of pointing this out. I love this. Every significant step forward in the Bible, every time something is stalled and needs a breakthrough, it's typically women that bring the breakthrough. So even things like we talk about Daniel, we often don't talk about Esther, we talk about Abraham, we often don't talk about Sarah, Adam, not Eve, uh, Miriam. Or how about Elizabeth and Zechariah? It's, it's continual. We highlight the men and not the women. But what, what is going on here? Um, even Moses, Moses' mothers, multiple mothers, his, his Hebrew mother and his Egyptian mother. That was really all about the mothers in that situation. Um, Mary, Joseph, I mean, it's, it's endless. So when, when creation's story needs to move forward, God speaks to the women, why is this? The reason is, is that women are not obsessed with power and conquest. In, in the story of Scripture, I'm not saying they can't be today, but what he's highlighting is that the women are not obsessed with power and conquest, and they are then willing to listen to what God is actually saying. Was that not Mary to a T? So God fulfills small, quiet dreams and huge dreams, and he relates your vocation and your calling to both. You are all called, and there's a voice for every person. Purpose and significance is for every single human being. We're not just here to receive in the church. We don't just come to Jesus just to receive him, but to be transformed to purposeful, fruitful, significant human beings. And like I said before, this changed the message for me. This changed evangelism to just an invitation to receive Jesus to, have you heard his voice? Because maybe, maybe if I release the voice of the Father over them, something in their heart would tap into the story that God is trying to pull them into, and they'd be able to receive what he wants to give them.
but sometimes you have to receive a word of your destiny before you receive the word of your assignment. And we've confused our destiny and our assignment. Our destiny is going to heaven. Our assignment is bringing heaven. And when we confuse these things, when we get off course and the story that we tell is completely twisted. So let's tell the right story today. Let's do it by finding your place in the story. God sees you. And he wants to see you. And he isn't afraid of your nakedness and your shame. Like I said before, most people live with this conviction that their lives will not amount to much of anything. They live with deep disappointment and an internal sense of unworthiness. Part of being the church is taking the charge to be the people, the global people, but here as a local communal people that are awakening expectation. Let's start by awakening that expectation today in each of our lives and to start to fuel the fans of that flame in this community and in this city and into the nations. God wants to speak to you. He wants to release purpose over your life. And there's stuff that he wants to unleash that's a better path than we've known, that's a better path than people have known, that's fulfilling, that's purpose-filled, and that's safe.